Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Thanks for listening to this Institute of Art and Ideas podcast, bringing you philosophy for our times. Here at the IAI, we're committed to taking philosophy out of dusty books and lecture halls and into the heart of public life. If you enjoy this debate and want to carry on the discussion, or watch over a thousand more debates and talks on all the latest issues in philosophy, science, politics and arts, visit iai.tv. Remember to subscribe and review on iTunes. In 2013, the Higgs boson was discovered. So what does this mean for 21st century physics? In this week's episode, we're bringing you CERN physicist John Ellis to share his thoughts. So what I want to do in this talk is to somehow bring out the importance of the Higgs boson uh, and why we think that our current understanding of matter is incomplete and why there has to be something above and beyond the Higgs boson. And if I have time at the end, I will just give you a, a little hint of some sort of excitement that we have at CERN at the moment. Okay, so just to uh, recap, uh, we have a description of all the visible matter in the universe. Uh, through something called the Standard Model, which was uh, postulated by Abdus Salam, uh, Rashan Weinberg, in the 1960s. And uh, their theory made essential use of the ideas of Peter Higgs et al. And in particular, it required absolutely the existence of a Higgs boson. Well, uh, initially, the theory was treated somewhat skeptically, but the first evidence for it came from ex experiments at CERN in the 1970s. If you come to visit CERN, you can see the piece of apparatus that these people are standing inside. So, uh, following these initial uh, confirmations of predictions of the standard model, many more detailed experiments uh, were done. And if you look very carefully, you can see a tiny little red dot there, which is in perfect agreement with the green line. The green line is the theoretical prediction. The red dot is the data. Everything agrees perfectly well. So what does the standard model contain? So it contains particles of matter. So uh, the one that you're probably most familiar with is the uh, electron over here. Uh, a couple of heavier electron-like particles have subsequently been discovered in cosmic rays and in particle physics experiments. Uh, inside nuclear matter, uh, the fundamental constituents of nuclei are protons. Inside protons and neutrons, there are things called quarks. And we now know that there are six different types of quark. Uh, I might mention there's also three different types of neutrino, although I'm not going to be discussing them very much in this talk. Okay, so th these are the fundamental Lego bricks, if you like, of uh, ordinary matter. But of course, you've got to stick those Lego bricks together, and that requires fundamental forces. Uh, some of them, again, are very familiar with to you. Uh, gravity, for example, that keeps even theoretical physicists' feet firmly on the ground. Sometimes. <laughs> Electricity and magnetism, which was uh, unified by James Clerk Maxwell at King's College London about 150 years ago. And then 
Inside nuclear matter, we distinguish a strong force that holds nuclei together and a weak force that's responsible for radioactivity. So this I like to think of as being, uh, in some sense, the, uh, the cosmic DNA that encodes all the information you need to make all the visible stuff in the universe, up to and including Boris Johnson. <laughs> well, it, except there's one thing missing, which is an explanation of where particle masses come from. Now, the, the electron has to have a mass. If it didn't, then the electron would fly away from nuclei at the speed of light, and there wouldn't be any atoms, and there wouldn't be any you, there wouldn't be any me, and there wouldn't be any... <laughs> You're on the ball. <laughs> Moreover, this particle here that's responsible for the weak interactions must have a large mass. Otherwise, the weak interactions would not be weak. Radioactivity would make us all glow in the dark. Life would be impossible. Uh, so we better find a way of giving masses to particles. So we all know from Newton that weight is proportional to mass. W is equal to mg. Einstein told us that energy is related to mass e equals mc squared. Unfortunately, these guys somehow forgot to explain where the mass comes from in the first place, and that's where Mr. Higgs comes in. Uh, so that's his theory on the blackboard behind. What I want to emphasize is that it's absolutely key in this theory that just like any other field, like electromagnetic field, has a particle called the photon, the Higgs field, which pervades all space, has a particle, a quantum, associated with it, and that's the Higgs boson. So I call it here the physicist's holy grail. Well, it was the, the holy grail for about 48 years in between the time it was postulated in 64 and the time it was discovered in 2012. Okay, so where is it discovered? Well, a Large Hadron Collider, which you do not see on the screen here. So uh, this collides thousands of billions of protons, maybe a billion collisions a second when it's working. Uh, when I checked half an hour ago, it wasn't working. Thunderstorm. Anyway, so it's uh, designed to look in the first place for the origin of mass. It checked whether this Higgs boson existed or not. But of course, the thing that I'm going to be mainly focusing on in this talk is other things, like, for example, the nature of the dark matter that fills the universe and the difference between matter and antimatter that we think is connected to the fact that in the universe today, matter dominates over antimatter. So the first run of the LHC where the Higgs boson was discovered was at quote-unquote, relatively low energies, 8 TV, which corresponds to, roughly speaking, 8,000 times the rest mass of the proton. Now we're doing collisions at 13 TV, uh, larger center of mass energy, we can produce heavier particles, and I'll maybe give an example of one that might be being discovered towards the end of the talk. Okay, so the discovery of the Higgs boson. So I think it's fair to say that uh, in the particle physics community, there was an outbreak of uh, mass hysteria <laughs> when uh, the ATLAS and CMS collaborations at CERN announced the discovery of a new particle. And this hit the headlines uh, all over the world, uh, even appeared in The Economist. So uh, I won't go through the details of the discovery. Let me just give you a, a, a summary. So w when you're looking for some new physical phenomenon, 
you have to distinguish it from the background, the crud that's produced by uninteresting collisions. So here, what has been done is to subtract from the data the uninteresting crud that you expect from the standard model. And you can see that you no know, statistical fluctuations apart, no, nothing very much seems to be going on. However, if I remove this little blind here, you can see that at this particular value of the mass, something is certainly going on. There's certainly some new particle there. So this was where we were on uh, July the 4th, 2012. A new particle has been discovered, but the question is, is it really the Higgs boson finally emerging from the background crud, or, or is it something else? So the situation is a little bit like, uh, you know, you're doing a jigsaw puzzle. Uh, our jigsaw puzzle started with the discovery of the electron in 1897, and you find behind the sofa, you know, some bent piece of cardboard, the picture's been rubbed off. Is this actually the particle that we've been looking for all those years? Now, at some level, obviously we hope that it is. At another level, we hope that it isn't. Because if it isn't, then that is telling us there's something else to look for beyond the Higgs boson. Now, graph. So what we did uh, with my uh, former student, uh, Tivong Yu, uh, is we said, look, if this particle is a Higgs boson, it should couple to other particles proportional to their mass. It's giving them their mass, so it has to connect to other particles proportional to their mass. So that's what we checked. So the red line is a prediction of the standard model. Uh, the data are shown by these little error bars. Notice there are error bars. And the best fit is at black dash line. Perfect agreement with the standard model. And that's why we wrote in our paper that this particle walks and quacks like a Higgs boson. And Peter Higgs could smile. Now, this sort of analysis has subsequently been done much better, much more precisely, much more data by the experimental collaborations, and everything is still totally consistent with the standard model. To which my personal reaction is, oh, shit. <laughs> it's so much more interesting if there had been some deviation. So, what might this thing be if it's not a Higgs boson? Well, I would say that there are two general schools of thought about what this particle might be. So one is that it's an elementary particle, like the electron seems to be, like quarks seem to be. And the other possibility is that it's some sort of composite object made up out of other little things inside. So a little bit like the proton or the neutron. Now, if it's elementary, uh, there are big problems when we try to calculate quantum effects. I'll say maybe a little bit more about it later on, but one natural way of controlling those quantum effects is to postulate additional particles, what we call supersymmetric particles. And I'll be discussing that hypothesis in more detail later in this talk. Over on the other side of the screen, uh, there are these guys who say, well, you know, maybe it's made up of smaller things. And in the same way that there are lots of different nuclear particles, they would suggest that there's going to be gazillions of different Higgs-like particles. I don't like those theories. Uh, I uh, lay my cards on the table. Uh, I think they have problems with, uh, with other aspects of the data that we have. But still, you know, it's a reasonable thing to go and look at the data to see whether there's any hint that there's some sort of you know, little clockwork taking place inside the Higgs boson.
So this is again something that uh, Tivong and I did. And I'm just going to quickly run through this. We looked at what we were learning from different types of particles into which the Higgs boson decays. We put all the information together and we found that everything is completely consistent with the standard model. Oh, shit, again. So this little green star that you can't see here, that is the prediction of the standard model. The little spotlight here, that's what the data are telling us. And the data are completely consistent with the standard model. Uh, no hint of any possible deviation. So, uh, on the basis of uh, our analysis and many other people's analyses, the Nobel Prize Committee decided in its infinite wisdom that beyond any reasonable doubt, it is a Higgs boson. So there's actually a little story behind that, which is that that quote was taken from the paper that I wrote with my student. Uh, but the journal, when we sent it for publication, said, beyond any reasonable doubt is not a scientific judgment. So we had to take it out of the paper to get it published. <laughs> so it's good enough for the Nobel Prize Committee, but not good enough to be published. Okay, so what may lie beyond the standard model? And I apologize, but I really like this slide. <laughs> th th this is our CERN Director General, by the way. Okay, so according to James Bond, the world is not enough, but I would claim that the standard model is not enough. And so let me just give you 007 reasons for saying that it has to be physics beyond the standard model. Number one, empty space is unstable. We are doomed. And I'm not talking about Donald Trump. <laughs> dark matter. You've probably all heard that there's dark matter which holds galaxies together. Uh, in fact, there's much more dark matter out there than there is visible stuff. So what is this dark matter? Where did the matter in the universe come from in the first place? Uh, if we try to calculate in the standard model, we don't get enough matter. We need some additional physics to explain where the matter comes from. Uh, there's some other problems which maybe I won't go through in great detail. Uh, quantum gravity. Quantum gravity. Eventually, we want to... Uh, reach Stephen Hawking's you know, theory of everything. And that clearly is something that's going to lie a long way beyond the standard model. Uh, maybe we're being overambitious in trying to solve that problem now, but uh, you know, let's try. So, as I said, 007 reasons for thinking there must be physics beyond the standard model. Now, I already said that uh, I love supersymmetry. And that's what it says on my T-shirt. This is the minimal supersymmetric extension of the standard model here. Okay. <laughs> it, it's also a, a German Gothic rock group, but that's, <laughs> that, that's a coincidence. <laughs> so many of these issues, I think, are uh, mitigated if you postulate supersymmetry. And... LHC Run 2, that has just started last year and that's continuing at the moment, I think has prospects for studying at least some of these problems. So I think there's good reason to think we're going to make progress. So let me talk, first of all, about uh, the problem with empty space. So we're back to calculating 
quantum effects. And what those quantum effects depend upon is how heavy the Higgs boson is, how heavy the other particles are, in particular the top quark, and of course, you no know, other possible new physics. But let's, for the moment, let's just stick with the standard model. So then, for some regions of this parameters, the universe is stable. For other reasons, it's unstable. And the data indicate that we're in this unstable region. Now, my personal belief is not that the universe is going to collapse. I believe that this is telling us that we're going to need new physics to prevent these quantum effects from running out of control. Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? If the answer to that question is yes, subscribe to IAI.tv for unlimited access to thousands of debates, talks, articles, academy courses and live events. Are you bored of the surface level news, politics, sports and entertainment coverage on your newsfeed? Go deeper, get the philosophy behind the news and get the latest big ideas from the world's leading thinkers on subjects at the core of the human condition, life, the universe and everything in between. It's free for the first month and there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level. So this is a picture that illustrates the problem. We are here. We have a Higgs. It has a value that gives masses to particles, which are fairly small. But over there, in the uh, right field, there is another possible value of the Higgs field, very large value. You know, the universe would look completely different if that was the value the Higgs field had. In fact, the universe would collapse instant, pretty much instantaneously if we were over there, the so-called big crunch scenario. So you might say, well, that's okay, we're over there, that's over there, why should we, why should we buy it? Well, the problem is that quantum effects necessarily cause everything to jiggle, including the Higgs field. And at some level, they could cause it to collapse through this barrier here and into this big crunch. Now, when you calculate the lifetime of the universe, no, don't worry, Donald Trump will get us first. The lifetime of the universe is, is way longer than the age so far. But there's a problem. Back when the universe was very young, we believe it was very hot and very dense. And those quantum effects, that jiggling would have been much more important. And that jiggling would have sent us through into that big crunch. So I think that we have to figure out some way of filling it that hole over there. And one such example of a theory that would do that is supersymmetry. Okay, so what else is supersymmetry good for? Dark matter. According to supersymmetry, there's a whole load of other particles heavier than the particles that we are made of. And the lightest of those particles, we think, would be stable. And it would weigh a lot. And so that would be very suitable for being the dark matter that we can't see. So that's one of the reasons why, when people ask me what lies beyond the standard model, I say supersymmetry. And I always write supersymmetry in the biggest possible font that will fit on the slide. <laughs> so as I already said, 
it stabilizes the electroweak vacuum. You know, the universe is not going to disappear tomorrow. It actually predicted successfully the mass of the Higgs boson. It said that the Higgs boson should look rather like what it is in the standard model. And it does many other wonderful things as well. Uh, it helps you unify the fundamental interactions. It provides dark matter and so on. So what is supersymmetry? So in the standard model, you remember I showed you a slide. There are particles of matter in the top half and forces in the bottom half, and there are particles associated with those forces, like, for example, the photon. Now, what supersymmetry could do for you in principle is to link these two different types of particles together, what we call the fermions in the top half of the slide and the bosons in the bottom half of the slide. Now, the, the difference between those particles is, that, is the way in which they spin. So I like to think of elementary particles as being like uh, ballerinas doing pirouettes, and some of them pirouette slowly, some of them pirouette faster. And wh what supersymmetry does is it links those different ballerinas together. It also helps us fix the masses of all the elementary particles. It would help us unify the fundamental forces could provide the dark matter, as I mentioned just a moment ago, and it plays an essential role in string theory and hence providing a possible theory of everything. So I, I think it would be most unwise of nature not to be supersymmetric. <laughs> of course, nature might have a different point of view. So, um, yeah, I said a moment ago that it helps us unify the fundamental forces. So... Uh, if you just take the forces that we measure in the laboratory today and extrapolate up to higher energies back to the beginning of the universe, it doesn't work. They don't become the same. But if you do it with supersymmetry, they do become the same. And so that's a very beautiful picture. Um, whether it has anything to do with reality, we don't know, because it involves an incredibly big extrapolation. But at least it's encouraging. Okay, so the experiments are looking for supersymmetric particles. In fact, more generally, they're looking for invisible dark matter particles. So how do you see something that's invisible? Okay, it doesn't interact, it's electrically neutral, you can't see it. Well, it carries away energy and momentum. So you look for events where there is energy and momentum that cannot be accounted for, a sort of energy-momentum deficit, if you like. And the experiments have been looking for that, haven't found it. But, no, with the ongoing run of the LHC, we will continue to do so. Antimatter. So I talked earlier on about the difference between matter and antimatter, and we are interested in that, not because we want to power up the Starship Enterprise, or indeed because we want to blow up the Vatican, but because we want to understand the difference between matter and antimatter and see whether it's somehow connected with the origin of matter in the universe. So antimatter was postulated by Dirac in the 1920s, and everybody thought that matter and antimatter would be exactly equal and opposite, same mass, opposite electric charge. So it came as a big surprise when it was discovered in the 1960s that that ain't the case. In fact, there is a difference between matter and antimatter, 
at least as far as their radioactive properties are concerned. And it was suggested in particular by the Russian physicist Sakharov that might explain why there's matter dominating in the universe today. And so there's a ex special experiment at CERN to try to uh, pin that mechanism down. So uh, this is actually a picture of uh, Sakharov, that one there, visiting CERN in about 1990. Uh, so he said, well, you know, if you've got interactions that can create matter, you've got the expansion of the universe, and you've got this difference between matter and antimatter, then you should be able to generate this matter asymmetry in the universe. And like I said, we've got an experiment that's dedicated to seeing whether that can be uh, worked out in detail. You know this guy? Einstein when he was a kid. Uh, he was probably about your age there in, in row number two. Okay. So I, I always think he looks a little bit sad in this picture, uh, perhaps because he realized that he was never going to construct a unified theory of everything. Well, one of the ideas that he worked with was the idea that there might be additional dimensions of space. And this is an idea that's become very popular in recent years with string theory. Uh, and in some theories with extra dimensions, uh, the gravitational force between particles could become strong at the energy scale of the LHC. And you might be able to create microscopic black holes just by colliding those quarks together. So some people got a bit nervous that if we made a black hole, it would eat up the entire Earth. Uh, well, it hasn't happened yet. Uh, in fact, according to the theory, these black holes would just evaporate uh, instantaneously through Hawking radiation. So we physicists would be delighted to see a black hole because then we could study in detail a theory of quantum gravity and uh, that would get us on to the seventh of James Bond's problems. So, what's going on now? So, uh, the LHC is operating at higher energies, uh, 13,000 times the mass of the, uh, of the proton. So, uh, the black line here measures the energy, the blue and the red line, how many different particles you have in the beams. Everything was cool. Uh, so, last year, we started getting data. And we got a surprise. So the physicist Rabi in the 1940s, when the muon was discovered, an electron-like particle that nobody had expected, he asked, who ordered that? So imagine yourself, you're in a Chinese restaurant, you know, all these dishes. Who ordered the Kung Pao chicken? So he was talking about the muon, but we physicists are now asking ourselves a similar question. So at the end of last year, the experiments showed preliminary data, and they showed that there was a, a funny bump with a mass about six times the mass of the Higgs boson. Now, we don't know whether this thing is real. It could just be a statistical fluctuation. It could be that it's going to go away. But if it doesn't go away, it would be mind-bogglingly exciting because it would be physics beyond the standard model. So the theoretical physics community, since this report, has been having what I would regard as 750 dreams. 
if this is indeed a new particle, there must be a lot of other new physics associated with it, and there will be work for physicists for the foreseeable future. So, so I said 750 dreams. In fact, by now, something like uh, 400 papers, theoretical papers, have been written on this. Uh, and if you say, well, each one of them has two dreams, that's 750, right? So my first paper on the subject is there, and then there's a second one about there, and another one about there. So uh, our Director General said in, in January, we have the right to be slightly excited. <laughs> then in March, the, date, uh, the experiments presented updated analyses of their data, and the peaks got even a little bit more significant. So I think now we're entitled to be even slightly more excited. At least the least one can say is this particle's not gone away. Of course, we have to wait and see uh, whether it, it's real or not. So I showed you previously a slide from the discovery of the Higgs boson on July the 4th, 2012. So I've got this placeholder slide <laughs> <laughs> just in case. But we should not forget that the more extraordinary a claim, the stronger the proof required to support it. And uh, so, you know, we're keeping as calm as we can, waiting to see whether this thing actually solidifies. So here's my summary. Here's the 750 GeV particle. It is, in some sense, the tip of an iceberg, if it exists. If it exists, there must be all sorts of other particles, which here are very small because something funny happened to the fonts. But anyway, not a whole bunch of other heavy particles. If this turns out to be real, then that will mark this. <laughs> you like that when I do it again? Uh, the sinking of the standard model. <coughs> so data has been taking place at the moment. So uh, if you can stand it, I will finish with an anecdote about Margaret Thatcher. <laughs> She's the one on the right. <laughs> so she came to visit CERN in uh, 1982, and she was introduced to a bunch of physicists, what do you do, young man? So I said, well, I'm a theorist. My job is to think of things for the experiments to look for, but I hope they find something different. Now, of course, Mrs. Thatcher liked things to be the way she liked them to be, right? Wouldn't it be better, young man, if they found what you predicted? So I said, well, you know, up to a point, but if you only find exactly what you predicted, then you don't have any clues for how to advance further. So we're currently hoping that the Higgs boson is not quite the same as it is in the standard model. We believe there is new physics beyond the Higgs boson. Maybe we're slightly excited that we might have found it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this Institute of Art and Ideas podcast. If you enjoyed this debate and want to carry on the discussion, visit iai.tv. Remember to subscribe and review on iTunes. How powerful is Cox Internet? Powerful enough to let your band members in Vegas, Phoenix, 
and Rhode Island. Jam like you're all in the same garage. Get gig speeds powered by fiber from Cox. It's internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, always building better. Download speeds up to one gigabit per second. Cox internet is connected to the premises via coaxial connection. Speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms and other restrictions may apply.